Or you guys can turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6. Before we get started into our passage this morning, I did want to say thank you to all of you who helped out with the country fair. This year, we had a lot of work to do. The day of the country fair came and there was rain, and so we had to move it inside for the first time ever. It was a ton of work. It was really hard, and you guys really pitched in. So many people came out and helped, and we're so grateful because it was a huge success. I don't know, for those of you who didn't come, uh, this is what this room looked like. We got rid of all the chairs and filled it with bounce houses, so there was more fun in this room than there has ever been before. We really debated, should we just leave them up for Sunday morning? Because you guys would, would really enjoy this sermon about Noah a lot more if you're hearing it from a bounce house. And so many people came. It was just so thrilling, guys, to see all these visitors come who've never been to our church. We don't know if they've been to a church before, but they came with their kids. They came in our walls. They had a great time. And now I invite you to be in prayer. Will you join us and pray for these people who came to our church for the first time this last week? Will you pray that God will draw them close to him, that he'll open their eyes so that they'll receive the, the free gift of eternal life in Jesus? Pray for the kids who came, many of them who heard the gospel, maybe for the first time. Pray that they would, would come to believe and trust Jesus. So pray that God would do great things as we follow up from the country fair. Really, for all you who helped, thank you. It was great. My kids are still talking about that, about jumping on the bounce houses in the sanctuary. Now, speaking of kids, we talk about Noah's Ark today, the flood of Noah. I have a question. How many of you grew up with a toy Noah's Ark? Anybody have a a toy Noah's Ark? How many of you parents bought a toy Noah's Ark for your kids? We did. We bought a, a little bath toy like this, great little toy. You fill it with animals and with Noah and his wife and his kids, and you put it in the bath, and it floats, and it's really fun, and you hope it doesn't fall over. And my kids play with Noah's Ark in the bath all the time, and then we dry them off, we put them into bed, and we read them the Noah's Ark story in their rhyming Bible. Parents, if you don't have the rhyming Bible, it is incredible, it is awesome. It takes all the stories of the Bible and puts them in cute little nursery rhymes. For Noah's Ark, it goes something like this. God brought animals two by two. They skipped and crawled and hopped and flew and squeaked and barked and chirped and mooed. The boat would be a floating zoo. I I hear these rhymes in my sleep because we we go through them so often. So my kids will read this story with me, this beautiful nursery rhyme about Noah and the flood. There's just one part of the story that the the rhyming Bible leaves out. It's the part where everybody dies. (laughs) The part where everybody in the story other than Noah and all those animals die. The, the, The nursery rhyme doesn't say anything about that part of the story. And yet that's what the story is about. This isn't a kid's story that we're looking at this morning. This is a a very adult story. This is a very dark story, full of sin and suffering and death. It's good that we teach our kids Bible stories from an early age, but but it is a little bit funny that we make toys and, and nursery rhymes about that story, because it is so dark. Really dark story, full of of sin and death and destruction. The good news for us, though, this morning as we look at this dark story is that even this dark adult story contains light. There there is really good news embedded in this really dark story. That's what we're going to pull out this morning. That's what we're going to look at because this story that is so full of sin and destruction and death, it is not primarily about sin or destruction or death. This story is primarily about God. This story is designed to reveal to us who our God is and what he is like. 
This story, it, it teaches us about God. It teaches us that our God cares deeply. It teaches us that our God waits patiently. It teaches us that, that when he must judge, our God judges fairly. And it teaches us that God always desires to deliver graciously. The story's not about sin, death, and destruction. It's about God. This story is designed to introduce you to a God who cares deeply, waits patiently, judges fairly, and delivers graciously. So let's jump in. Let's see the good that's here, the light that's here in this story. Let's see what it has to teach us about our God. So the first thing that the story of Noah and the flood teaches us about God is that our God cares deeply. He cares deeply about humanity and about the choices that we make. Look with me starting in Genesis chapter 6 verse 1. It says, now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I made them. The first thing that you want to notice in this story is how far humanity has fallen into sin. Very deep into the pit of sin. Now, the, the rhyming Bible is talking about the story of Noah begins with this little rhyme. God was very, very sad for all the people were so bad. They would cheat and they would lie. They would make their sisters cry. Gracie, in particular, really doesn't like that last line. It sounds like people were so mean back then. And I just want to tell my daughter, well, Gracie, if only the worst thing they were doing was making their sisters cry. That would be so much better than the picture we have in Genesis 6. Because this isn't making your sisters cry kind of evil. This is really deep sin that Moses reveals to us was going on in the days of Noah. It tells us that the sons of God intermarried with the daughters of men, and that is one of, if not the hardest verses to interpret in the whole book of Genesis. I don't really know what to do with it, to be honest. Really hard to interpret. Scholars have been struggling for thousands of years with this. There's three basic options not to mention all kinds of crazy out there options. The basic options are, number one, we have men from the line of Seth. Remember, Seth was the good son, so he had a good line, intermarrying with daughters from the line of Cain. Cain's line was evil and sinful. So these two lines intermarry, and the result is that all of humanity heads down the road of greater and greater sin. That's one option, good option. Second option is that these are mighty kings on the earth who are building the first harems. So they are taking all the women that they want and building these huge harems for themselves. That's a possible option. Third option, which is probably most likely, is that here we have demon-possessed men who are fathering powerful, corrupt offspring with human women. 
That seems to be what the Old Testament and New Testament does with this passage. I really don't know which of those options is correct. You can make a strong case for any of them. Ultimately, though, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which of those is correct because the point of the passage is whatever this intermarriage is, it leads all of humanity all the way down the depths of sin, as deep as they could go particularly into the sin of violence. Violence is really the center here. They fall so far into violence that notice again what God sees in them in verse five. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. It means that every fantasy, every daydream, every desire of man's heart was only ever for evil things. And in the language there, particularly for violent things. Humanity lusted after violence. And in that culture that celebrated violence, there are these mighty men, it says, men of renown. Those are not heroic men. Those are villainous men. Those are guys like Jesse James or the Godfather who are celebrated for their brutality and vindictiveness. That was who ruled the earth in Noah's day. Men of unprecedented, unrestrained violence. They loved violence. It was a sport to them, entertainment to them. They loved violence and the world loved them for it. The world worshiped these men. So you look at humanity in the days of Noah and everyone on the planet is celebrating and lusting after violence, worshiping violence and brutality. Now we have some, some pockets of that in our world today, but, but we as, as a people, as a human race, have not fallen nearly as far into sin as they had. The entire human race is completely corrupt, completely sold into violence. Now the question for us is, how does God respond? So he looks down and sees that humanity has fallen as far as possible into the depths of sin. You would expect God to respond in anger. You'd expect some some righteous wrath here, some vindictiveness in, in the heart of God as he sees how far mankind has gone, but that's not what we see in this passage. How does God respond? Look again at verse six. It says, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. As God sees the choices that human beings are making, these sinful, violent choices, it grieves him. The almighty creator is filled with sorrow. Now, now we have to reconcile that with our understanding of the omniscience of God. He knew it was coming. He knows all things past, present, and future. But his knowledge that, that mankind was sliding further and further into violence, it did not keep him. It did not exempt him from feeling incredible grief as he watched it happen. As God looks down at the human race and sees the evil of their choices, it grieves him. And that's helpful for us to reflect on that response of God because sometimes in error, we think of God as if, as if God is just sitting up in heaven, always forever perfectly happy and content. Theologians call that idea of God impassibility. He is impassable. His emotions have no connection to any choices we make. He is forever perfectly happy. That's not the God we see in Scripture. God could have been that way. He's sovereign. He's almighty. He could have chosen to be nothing but forever happy. 
But that's not the God you see in the Bible. The God that you see in the Bible grieves over sin. He feels sorrow over sin. He is emotional. He is passionate. He cares deeply and is affected by the choices we make. Think of the God in the prodigal son. Prodigal son, the father there is a picture of God. The prodigal goes away and then he comes home. And how does the father respond to the son's return? He's filled with compassion. And he runs to the son and falls on his neck and covers him with kisses. That is not an impassable God. That is a passionate God. A God who has always righteous emotions filling him as he looks at the human race. He is affected by the choices that we make. I love how my seminary professor, as he studied, uh, or as he taught us this doctrine of theology about God, I love how he put it. He says that God didn't have to care. God chose to care. God didn't have to be emotionally affected by the choices we make. He's God. He didn't have to emotionally invest in the human race, but he freely chose to. He freely chose to care so deeply about you that when you choose good things, it makes him rejoice, and when you choose bad things, it makes him grieve. We have a God who cares deeply about us, He is not an unfeeling, unemotional judge sitting in heaven just waiting to smite you when you mess up. No, he's a tender, caring father who longs for you to make good choices and grieves when you don't. And so as we think about how to apply that to our lives, I think that should become another reason on our list for choosing not to sin. When temptation comes knocking, And you feel tempted to give in to this sin, which seems really attractive, it seems really desirable, and you begin to think through, why should I not give in to that sin? One of the reasons on your list should be because if I give in to that sin, I will grieve the heart of my heavenly Father who created me, who gave me life, who loves me, who redeemed me, who healed me, who is restoring me, who gave his own son for me. I will grieve his heart if I give in to this sin. First thing that Genesis 6 reveals to us about our God is he is a God who cares deeply about the choices we make. He cares deeply and emotionally for us. That's the first thing we learn about our God. He cares deeply for us. The second thing that this account teaches us about our God is that he's a God who waits patiently. He waits patiently. Look again at verse 3. Verse 3, the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, there's a couple interpretive options there. 120 years. It could be that God is setting the maximum length of human life. That's what some people hold. But I don't think that's likely because a lot of people after the flood lived longer than 120 years. I, I favor the second option. The second option is God's telling humanity how long they've got till judgment comes. From the moment when God sees violence upon the earth and says this must stop or judgment is coming, he gives humanity 120 years to turn the boat around, to fix their act, to repent and return to God, turn from their violent ways and return to him. I think that what God is doing here in this verse is the same thing that he'll have Jonah do much later. When he sends Jonah to Nineveh, what message does Jonah declare? Yet 40 days 
and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, you, you recognize if all God wanted to do was destroy Nineveh, then there wouldn't have been 40 days, right? He wouldn't have given them time. Why did God give them those 40 days? Because God didn't want to destroy them. He would, if they wouldn't turn, he would destroy them. Reluctantly, he would do it. But that wasn't what he wanted. What he wanted was repentance and restoration. And so he gave Nineveh 40 days so that they could hear the warning from Jonah and respond. And they did. They repented and destruction did not come to the city of Nineveh. God's doing the same thing here in Genesis 6. He's just giving mankind a lot longer, much more than 40 days. He gives them 120 years. He warns them clearly and then gives them 120 years to repent so they can escape judgment. Why? Because God did not want to flood the human race. That was not his desire He would do it if they would not repent, but his desire was restoration. It was healing. It was salvation. So he gives them 120 years, and then he waits patiently. He waits for them to turn it around. It's important to understand this as we look at this story, because a lot of folks in our world who are not believers, a lot of secular people who don't believe that the Bible is true, They read a story like Noah and the ark, and they assume that you and I believe in a vindictive, angry tyrant of a God. You you can read whole blogs about this, whole web pages dedicated to the idea that the God of the Bible is a murderer because he, he murdered almost the whole human race. He's horrible, right? He's angry, tyrant, mean. Well, no, that's not the God of Genesis 6. The God of Genesis 6 sees mankind completely overwhelmed by violence and he offers them a warning. He offers them patiently time to turn it around. He waits for 120 years for them to turn. His desire is never death and destruction. His desire is always repentance and life. So he gives mankind 120 years He waits patiently while Noah builds his ark. That's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3. The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. God waited patiently as Noah built this ark. It probably took him about 120 years to build the boat. We'll talk about that later this morning. During that whole time, God waited patiently for the human race to repent and he sent Noah to them to declare the message that judgment is coming, that a flood is coming. Peter, later he calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Noah declared to all of the human race that a flood is coming. Look, I'm building a big boat because it's gonna happen. For 120 years, God gave the human race a clear message of warning, hoping that they would turn from their violent ways. Why? Because Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, because God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God wants for every person on this planet, even the really wicked ones, even the really evil people who we wish that he would just judge them right now. That's not what God wants. God wants salvation for them. He desires all to be saved. Ezekiel 33, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. I love the end of that verse. That's God speaking. God speaking to wicked, evil people saying, please turn from your sin and be saved. 
That's always God's desire. He waits patiently to give human beings a chance to turn from sin, to repent and return to him so that he can bring mercy instead of judgment. God gave him 120 years to turn it around. Sadly, they did not. You know the story. Humanity continued in their sin and their rebellion and their violence. And so finally, after waiting patiently for 120 years... Finally, God brought judgment. And that's the third thing that we learn about God in this passage. When judgment comes, it is always fair. God judges the human race fairly. Look with me, chapter 6, verse 11. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Now in that passage, in English, we miss something really significant. In Hebrew, there is a word repeated four times. Let me put it up on the screen and underline. Same Hebrew word, all four of those instances. It's the Hebrew word sahat. It means to corrupt, to ruin, to destroy. So what we're learning about God in this passage, the first two times that that word appears, it describes God looking down, and this is what he saw on the earth. The whole earth was ruined. The whole thing was broken and corrupted. The third use of the word tells us why. Why is the earth ruined? Because we ruined it. Humanity has ruined the earth. They have corrupted it. And so it is the fourth time that the word is used where God says, okay then, I will finish what you started. You have ruined the earth, so I will ruin you. What we see when we look at it in Hebrew is that the flood is not evil. The flood is fair. It is perfectly fair. It is eye for an eye kind of justice. God says, humanity, you have ruined yourselves and my earth, and so I will finish what you started. You've destroyed yourselves, so I will destroy you. The flood is completely fair. All of the judgments of God are completely fair. God's judgments are never arbitrary. They are never undeserved. They always come with clear warning and clear accountability. God's judgments are always fair. And so after waiting 120 years for humanity to repent, God sends the flood. He sends this justice that he had warned them about. Look at chapter 7, starting in verse 19. The flood comes. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. The flood comes and wipes out all human life. And and there's a challenging interpretive question here that scholars have debated uh, for a long time. And that's, was this flood global or was it local? The challenge for us is, you may remember this from a few weeks ago, the same Hebrew word, aretz, it can refer to the whole planet or it can refer to all the land where people live. So is this flood just covering the land where people live or is it covering the whole planet? You can make a good biblical and scientific case either way. I really don't know. Ultimately, it does not matter. 
whether this flood was global or local, whatever it was, it wiped out all people other than Noah and his family. All of humanity perishes for their sin in this flood. And that drives us to ask, we must ask ourselves, is this flood that wipes out all human beings, young and old, rich and poor, is it fair? Is that fair what God did? Is it fair to wipe out young and old, rich and poor all together? The answer is yes. It is absolutely fair because remember what God said in Genesis chapter two. What did he say to the human race? If you sin, you will surely die. You will die, die. He repeated it twice in Hebrew so that we would know if you choose sin, you will die. Well, all of us, young and old, rich and poor, we have all chosen sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We are all sinners, so therefore we all deserve death. Young and old, rich and poor, that's what we deserve from God. So the flood, it was completely fair. It was the most fair thing God could do. That should be a good corrective for us because a lot of times when we think about life, what we think we really want in life is fairness. I want life to be fair. I want everyone to get exactly what they deserve right now. This is a thought that comes in my mind, particularly when someone is a jerk to me, when someone cuts me off or, or does something mean to me, or when I see a really unethical or, or mean person get ahead in life, what comes to my mind is I wish God would give them justice now. I want life to be fair. And then I read Genesis 6 through 9, and I remember, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't want life to be fair. Because if God was fair to all of us, what would happen right now? We would all die and wake up in hell. Because that's fair. We are all sinners. We all deserve the eternal wrath of God. You don't want a fair God. That's not what you want in life. You don't want a fair life. You want a gracious life. You want God to give you good you don't deserve. You don't want him to be fair to you. When God must judge, he always judges fairly. The good news for us is that throughout Genesis, God doesn't only give judgment. Much better than that, he gives grace. The God of the book of Genesis is a God who judges, but more than that, he is a God who gives grace. That's what you want. You don't want God to be fair. You want God to be gracious. So that's the fourth thing that we see about God in this passage. He is a God who delivers graciously. He delivers graciously. What does grace mean? Grace means to get something good that you don't deserve. And that's exactly what Noah will get. Look again, turn back to chapter six. Let's meet Noah. Let's see what what God reveals to us about this man. Look at chapter six, verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now, the order of those two verses, verses 8 and 9, the order is very significant because if you look at verse 9, Noah looks like a stud. He looks awesome. He says all kinds of good things about Noah. He's righteous. He's blameless. He walks with God. 
So if verse 9 came first, then you would assume that Noah is delivered because of his good works, right? That's why God gives us verse 8 first. Verse 8 says that Noah found favor with God. The, the Hebrew behind that word favor, it's the word grace. It's actually the first time the word grace appears in your Bible. Noah found grace from God. The idea is that God looked down and chose to give grace to this man. Noah didn't deserve it. Remember, that's the definition of grace. Grace is getting something good you don't deserve. Noah was a sinner like all of us. Noah deserved death and destruction. Instead, he receives grace. He receives mercy. He receives salvation from God. It's important that verse 8 came first because it teaches us salvation is never by our good works. It is never something that we earn from God or merit from God. It is always by grace. It is God's gift to us. Everything good in your life is by God's grace. It is a gift to you. The first thing we learn about Noah is God's grace. That's the basis of everything good in Noah's life. It is because of that grace, that that gift of mercy from God, it is grace that grows Noah to become this incredibly obedient man, righteous and and blameless and walking with God in verse nine. None of those words mean that Noah was perfect. He wasn't. It means that compared to the rest of humanity, Noah was doing pretty good. He was not participating in the violence that God was blaming the human race for. Now again, it's not that that righteousness earns grace from God. Grace is the reason he was righteous. God's grace transformed Noah. Because God selected Noah and gave him grace, Noah grows into an incredibly righteous man, an incredibly obedient man. And it's one particular act of obedience that our story focuses on. Look at chapter 6, verse 14. God gives Noah a command. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. The primary thing we, we know about Noah's obedience was his obedience to this one command, build a big boat. Now, how big was that boat? Kind of hard to wrap your mind around. So here it is against something you're familiar with. This is Noah's Ark versus Kyle Field. It's a big boat. It's about 53 year, yards wider than or longer than the football field, including the end zone. So it would have stuck into the stands on both the north side and south side of the field. It was about half the width of the football field. And in our world, that would be a big boat. In Noah's world, that was an absolutely monumental boat. At that point in human history, they had never seen anything made by man that big. It was colossal to Noah. I don't think it could wrap his mind around those kind of dimensions. It was just colossal. It would have taken thousands of trees to build this thing. And remember, this is in an age before saws to cut the trees, before trucks to haul the trees, before cranes to lift the trees. All Noah had was Stone Age tools in his own two hands. It was built by manual labor. And remember how many men are involved. It's just Noah and his three sons, because everybody else said no and thought they were crazy. So it's just four guys working with Stone Age tools to build a boat almost as big as Kyle Field. Huge monumental task. It would appear it took them almost the entire time of warning. So over a century to build this boat. 
And I, I can't even conceive of that task. Imagine God telling you, build something you've never seen before that you can't even imagine and it will take you 120 years to do it. It's a huge task. And yet the amazing thing is, is that Noah steps up. Noah obeys God. It's amazing when you look at Noah. He obeys God and remember, for for year after year, decade after decade, Noah works with Stone Age tools to build a boat as big as Kyle Field and all he has to go on is one promise from God. Noah had never seen a flood this big, never seen anything like what God was describing. And there is no record of miracles. God hadn't proven to Noah that he could send a flood this big. All God had done is spoken a command, build it, and Noah did. One command, and Noah gave 120 years of his life to obeying God. What you see there is that God's grace has worked a miracle in Noah's life. It has transformed Noah from a sinner like all the rest of the human race into an incredibly obedient man. Incredible obedience, incredible endurance that you see in this passage. So God in grace chooses Noah and transforms Noah, and then the flood comes. It rains upon the earth for 40 days, and then look at the beginning of chapter 8. The flood comes in chapter 7. God's deliverance comes in chapter 8. God shows up, and in grace, he delivers Noah and his family. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. God in grace begins to dry out the water. He begins to to fix the earth so that the ark can come to rest and they can all get out of the ark. Now, it was a long time for the wind to dry the water. It would appear if you add up all the dates that it was probably around a year between when Noah and the animals went on the ark and when they got off the ark. So a long period of time when they had to depend upon God's grace and God's power to protect them and watch over them. So God, in grace, he he keeps the ark safe. He dries the ground. He delivers them. And then after a year, God opens the door in the side of the ark. And Noah and all his family and all the animals come off the ark. And God gives them grace once again in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is full of God's grace. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. They've just gotten off the ark. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That phrase, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that's so significant. When did God say that previously? Remember, that was chapter one. That was before all the sin. That was before all the violence, all the wickedness. God restores the human race to the same task. What God is showing us is he didn't give up on humanity. Even though we deserve to be wiped out, we we deserve to be given up on. God restores and rebuilds what humanity has destroyed. He gives Noah in grace the same task that he gave Adam and Eve before they fell into sin. Not only does he give them the same task, but he gives them the same identity. Look at verse six. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God, he made man. Even after the incredible unprecedented wickedness of Genesis chapter six, still God says, you are made in my image. You are special. You are unique. You are precious to me. God gives humanity the same task. He gives us the same identity. And what that teaches us, what that reveals to us as we think about God's gracious deliverance, what that reveals to us is that there is no depth of sin that you could fall into 
from which God's grace could not rescue and rebuild you. If God can rescue and redeem and rebuild the human race after Genesis 6, he can rescue and redeem and rebuild you after anything. You're not as bad as them. I promise you that. If God can restore humanity after that, he can restore you. So there is no sin that you could fall into that would put you beyond the reach of God's grace. There is no addiction that he cannot free you from. There is no evil that he cannot restore you from. There is nothing that you have messed up in your life that he can't fix. That's the power of God's grace. If his grace was powerful enough to save and deliver and rebuild the human race after Genesis 6, it's powerful enough to save, deliver, and rebuild you. There's no one still breathing on this planet who is beyond the power of God's grace. And so that leads us to the question, okay, well, how do I get God's grace? How do I receive God's deliverance, his salvation, his mercy, his rebuilding and renewal in my life? Well, think about Noah. How did Noah receive God's grace? How did Noah receive salvation? Well, he received salvation in the ark. Noah didn't save himself, right? He didn't swim for a year. No, he, he got in a boat. He got in the ark, and it's the ark that saved him. Being located in the ark brought salvation. It's the same for you and me. We are saved by being in Christ. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, then you will be saved. You will be delivered. You will not face punishment for your sins. Now, what does it mean to be in Christ? Same thing of being in the ark. It means that when God sees you, he sees you inside Christ. He doesn't see you anymore. He sees Jesus. He applies Jesus' righteousness to you. He applies Jesus' death to you. As a result, you receive forgiveness. You receive the life of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. If you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. You will not be judged for your sin. You will not experience God's wrath. You can receive deliverance from God if you are in Christ. But how do you get in Christ? How do you get in there, inside Jesus? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't earn your way into Jesus. That's not how it works. You don't do good deeds and, and try to merit your way into the righteousness of Christ. No, it's a gift, an absolutely free gift. You don't have to earn God's forgiveness. You don't have to earn eternal life. God offers it to you for free. That's ultimately why Jesus went to the cross. So you don't have to earn eternal life so that he can give it to you. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so that he could give to humanity salvation as a free gift. That's what grace means. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. It's yours for free. All you have to do is receive it. God doesn't force his gift upon you. You must say yes. That's what you do the moment that you believe, the moment that you say, yes, God, I, I believe that Jesus died to, to free me from sin and rose from the dead to give me life. I want that. Please, God, give me eternal life. The moment that you say that to God, you're in Christ, you are free of condemnation, you are forgiven, and you will spend eternity with God. All you have to do is receive it as an absolutely free gift. 
We're gonna close in prayer, and as I pray, I'm gonna pray for two things, and I wanna ask you to join me in praying for these two things. First, let's together go before the Lord, and let's ask him on behalf of any person here who's with us this morning who hasn't received that free gift. Will you join me in praying that for any person in here who's trying to earn their way to God, maybe they came to church this morning because they're trying to prove to God that they're worthy of eternal life and forgiveness, will you join me in praying that God would open their eyes to see it's a free gift? Forgiveness isn't something you earn. God's love isn't something you work for. It's free. Pray that God would let this be the morning of salvation for them, that he would open their eyes to see the beauty and freeness of the gospel. That's the first thing that I want you to pray with me. Second thing that I want you to pray with me is for all the rest of us who have received that free gift, will you join me in praying that God would cause us to so love the people of this town, the men, women, and children that we go to school with, that we go to work with, that we see in the grocery store, that we live next to, that he would cause us to love them so much that we would be willing to tell them. To tell them that there is a way to escape judgment. There is a way to be forgiven and to have eternal life. All you have to do is receive it as a free gift through faith in Jesus. Will you join me in praying that God would break our hearts for the people of this city so that we will be willing to share with them the good news that there is a way of escape. There is a way to be saved. Pray with me, God, We thank you and praise you that you are a God of grace. We thank you that in this story that seems so full of sin and violence and death and destruction that even here, it is your grace that's at the center of this story. It begins with grace. It's continued in grace and it ends with grace as you rebuild and restore humanity. Thank you that you are a God who gives us good that we don't deserve. God, if all you did was treat us fairly, we would all spend eternity in hell. For we are all sinners. We all deserve your punishment and wrath. Thank you that instead of giving us what we deserve, you give us grace. Thank you that Jesus made that possible by dying for our sins on the cross and rising from the dead. And right now, Lord, as a community, as a family, we come before you and we pray on behalf of any person here who has not yet received eternal life as a free gift, who who has not yet seen that, that forgiveness isn't something they need to earn. It's absolutely free. They just have to say yes to you, I pray, Lord. Please open their eyes. Let them see the beauty of the gospel this morning. Help them to believe that Jesus, your son, really did die for them and rise from the dead for them so that they could have eternal life with you forever. I pray that this morning they would believe. And for all the rest of us here who have believed that good news, Father, we come before you and we pray that you would break our hearts for the people of this city. I pray, Father, that like Noah, we would all become preachers of righteousness, that all of us would proclaim the good news that salvation is possible through faith in Christ, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who have trusted in him. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to share the good news of Jesus with our friends and our neighbors, our roommates, our classmates, our coworkers, that we would be faithful to tell them the good news of Jesus. Thank you that you are a God who is good. 
Thank you that you are a God who cares deeply about us, not because you had to, but because you chose to. Thank you that you are a God who waits patiently. When, you, when we sin, you do not just smite us, but you wait patiently for us to turn back to you. Thank you that you are a God who, who when you judge, it is always fair. And thank you most of all that you are a God who above all else loves to give grace. Thank you that we are recipients of your grace. In the name of your son, Jesus, who makes grace possible, we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Be witnesses this week. Thanks for joining us. I'm Brian Fisher here with Matt Morton. Today we're talking about the flood in Genesis 6 through 9 and a particular issue related to the flood. Was it global or was it local? Matt, to set the stage for this conversation, I want to read a few verses from Genesis chapter 7, beginning in verse 19. It says, The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all those in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. It has been discussed and debated extensively whether the flood was over the entire earth or whether it was just localized. Now, from a theological perspective, it's clear that uh, at the very least, uh, all of humanity was wiped out in this judgment. So if humanity had not spread beyond a a local region, probably in uh, this fertile crescent region, then the flood could have just been local and accomplished that purpose of of judging all of mankind. But it's also been observed that the Hebrew word Eretz can refer to the land, and in the Pentateuch, particularly the promised land area, it can also refer to the entire earth. So would you discuss with us a little bit the, the uh, interpretive options for local or global flood? Sure. And, and you're right. Traditionally, most interpreters have assumed in the history of the church and the history of Jewish interpretation that this was global. It covered the whole earth. Uh, there are some challenges, particularly that have arisen in, say, the past 100 years or so, with the global flood perspective. And most of those challenges relate to uh, the science of a worldwide flood like what seems to be described at face value in Genesis 6 through 9. Um, Some of the problems you run into, uh, for example, are the water itself. If you have water that rises to about 5,000 meters across the surface of the earth, so we're talking about 15 to 20,000 feet across the surface of the earth, uh, where did all the water come from and where did it go? Uh, At present, there's not that much water in the oceans or in the clouds. And so uh, there have been some solutions that people have proposed. One could be that there was a large canopy filled with water that covered the entire earth that was emptied out at that time. Uh, But again, one of the challenges you have with that is Uh, That would increase the temperature of the earth significantly to a point where it might not be 
habitable. Uh, it would change the oxygenation levels of the earth where there might not be enough oxygen in the atmosphere for people to breathe. And so some of those challenges have risen. Some people will suggest, well, perhaps the continents actually sank and rose again. Uh, but again, you struggle with issues of, you know, our current rates of continental movement don't seem to be that fast. And so uh, there are some from the perspective of geologists in particular, some challenges with a global flood. Um, and I lay these out not to say that a global flood didn't happen, but just to say these are questions that have been, that have to be answered. Another one relates to the animals on the ark. Uh, if we look at our current animal species in the world, assuming we're talking about land animals, there's one and a half to two million species that we're aware of. Um, even if you assume that Noah only put what we call animals of the first kind. So he puts a wolf instead of every species of dog. You don't have a poodle and a collie and, you know, every species of dog. If the flood is only a few thousand years ago, then you have to deal with rates, fast rates of evolution in the last few thousand years to create now all of the different species that we do see. And so there are some problems with a global flood. Now, certainly the text itself at face value, again, seems to imply that the flood covers the earth. And yet, as you mentioned, Brian, there's a couple of issues to keep in mind. Uh, for example, the word Eretz that is often translated earth here, many places, if not most places in the Old Testament, it actually refers to the land of Israel and the surrounding environment. So Genesis 12 is a great example. God tells Abraham, leave your land and go to the land I will show you. That's the same word, Eretz. Now, he's obviously not asking Abraham to mm -hmm. go to Mars, right? right? He's right, not asking right. him to go to another planet. So when, when it says that the land is flooded, we have that option. Uh, you do have a, a couple of other problems. Uh, here in the passage you just read, uh, the water prevailed 15 cubits higher. Now, if, if that means it was 15 cubits higher than the highest mountains in the known world, certainly that has to necessitate a global flood. But another option is that the water prevails 15 cubits higher from its starting point, and the mountains are covered from the perspective of Noah, who is in the ark, not to mention that their view also of mountains in the region could be that they're looking at the mountains in their land and the far-off mountains that were higher. Uh, the ranges that are much, much higher, 17,000, 18,000 feet, aren't included in the descriptions. In other words, right. it could be that the author, that Moses, as he's writing, is simply looking at the perspective of the land itself. Right. It seems that that's a possibility if you read in chapter 8, verse 5, it says, The water decreased steadily until the tenth, of the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So, chapter 8, verse 5, the tops of the mountains are visible but then in chapter 8, verse 9, it says, The dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him in the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth, that is all ha Eretz. So right. the tops of the mountains are visible, but the entire earth is covered. So it, it appears in that section, at least, that what Moses is saying is the whole land is covered, but in the distance he could begin to see the tops of the mountains. Right. And... One of the things that's important to keep in mind, even in this whole discussion, is that the Hebrew language doesn't always use words like all and whole in the same way that we do or tend to do. So when we say all the earth, we think everything everywhere. When we say all the animals, we're thinking all the ones in the world. 
But you have illustrations like Deuteronomy 2.25, where God says, I will put the fear of Israel uh, in all of the nations under heaven. Now, obviously, at this point, we're looking primarily at those nations, really, that are surrounding Israel, the Canaanite nations, maybe the Egyptians. We're probably not talking about the Native Americans who had never heard of Israel at that point. So language like that can be used in an extensive way, really, to indicate a more localized phenomenon. And that's not unusual in the Old Testament at all. Um, Now, on the side of the global flood, there are a couple of issues that need to be dealt with. You know, Peter mentions the flood in 2 Peter chapter 3, and in connection with the flood, he says, the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so you could argue that Peter believed in a global flood, that he's saying, just as the world was destroyed with fire, one day God will burn up the world. Um, You're not necessarily forced into that interpretation of Genesis if you believe that, you know, really Peter is painting with broad strokes here, that he's saying just as God destroyed humanity, just as God ended humanity, he also will one day destroy it the earth again. Right, right. And in Second Peter 3, verse 6, in the, we use vocabulary a little bit differently than the Hebrews did or the Greeks did. Verse 6 says, through these things, the world existing at that time, and it is the word cosmos, which can mean the universe. Mm-hmm, right. Or it can mean the earth, or it can mean the inhabited area here, or it can refer to uh, humanity. You know, that is humanity dwelling on the earth who are in rebellion against God. Right. And that's typically the way that John uses it. Right. And so all of these things actually bring up a great point that when we're talking about global or local flood, it's important to note that this is a debate that happens even amongst those who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And it is possible to hold to the inerrancy of Scripture and yet interpret it a little bit differently on issues like this. And so the questions here really are not ones of whether the Bible is true. It is a legitimate uh, attempt to go, what exactly is the most reasonable understanding of this passage? And so if there was a global flood, there's, there's no problem even with saying, you know, the text says there's a global flood, and so we can trust that God can miraculously do anything he wants. God could put all of that water on the earth, and he could take all of that water away, and we don't even have to have scientific evidence that it happened for it to be true, if we believe in a God that is that powerful. Um, On the other hand, from the regional or local flood perspective, it's not outside the boundaries of the text as we might understand it to say it could be regional. But remember, when you're talking from the perspective of Moses writing the book of Genesis, his world is contained around that fertile crescent and near the Mediterranean basin. And so when he talks about all of life being flooded, it's not necessary to assume that he means it in the way that we might mean it from our modern perspective, that his perspective of the world could have been very different from ours, and that's an acceptable interpretation. Matt, thanks so much. As you wrap us up, remind us again that the flood is dramatic, that that God, uh, whether it's local or global, he wiped out almost all of humanity except for one family. Why did he do it? 
right? That's the key to the whole passage is ultimately God chooses to judge his creation because they are destroying everything he's made because sin has gotten to a place where everything they think, everything they do is always evil, it tells us in Genesis 6. And so God reaches a place where judgment is the necessary course of action so that he can start again and work toward uh, humanity fulfilling his purposes on the earth. And so that's the primary issue in this passage, regardless of whether you think global or local flood, is uh, God is judging humanity and all of humanity. But in the midst of that, we see the grace of God with the, the ark of Noah rising above the floodwaters so God can start again. Right. So God in, in judging is actually exercising grace because he is rescuing humanity from itself. Absolutely. Matt, thanks. Appreciate your time. For more information and more resources, you can get on our website at grace-bible.org.